Well, very good morning and welcome to this, the second Sunday of Lent. I'm so glad you're joining us for service here in Church of the Good Shepherd. You know, um, if I were to ask any person, Christian or non-Christian, what's the most famous Bible verse? What do you think it is? If you watch American sports, you know, you'll see sometimes in the crowd, someone will hold up a sign like this, you know, uh, uh, John 3.16, Tim Tebow, a, a famous quarterback, or you even put the verse right there on his eye black, you know, to testify to it. Do you all know John 3.16? Yeah? Try, I tried yesterday, uh, I realized our young people, maybe, I don't know whether they were shy or they couldn't remember what the verse was. <laughs> I tried it. Let me try it with you guys. I'm sure you are much better. Together, for God's, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Hallelujah. Very good. <laughs> you passed. You did your uh, Bible uh, memorization well. But it's... Um, important that we understand the context of the verse. Because any text without a context can become a pretext. I remember one of my Bible uh, uh, teachers in seminary used to say that all the time. You can take a verse and if it's wrenched out of its context, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. That's the point he was trying to make. And I think today as we look at this verse, it will begin to give us a context in which Jesus said these words. So that we understand the full implication and the full meaning of what he means by this verse. So we pick it up in verse 1. It tells us, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Right? In all the Gospels, you always see people talk, uh, Jesus talk about all the Pharisees and the scribes. But never is anyone named except for Nicodemus. And interestingly, if you look through the Gospel of John, he's named three times. Here in chapter 3, chapter 7, and then at the end in chapter 19. Significant. But, you know, we are going to look at him because, in a sense, if you read through this passage, he asks three questions. Well, it doesn't seem like he asks three questions because the first one is more like a statement. But after that, there were two other questions that followed up. But Jesus answered all three of his questions. And I think in that, we will begin to see what we uh, can apply then to our own lives from this passage and specifically from this verse which we love and know so well, John three sixteen. So let's carry on. In verse 2, it says this, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, and you can see his answer all three times. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like I said, he doesn't seem to be asking a question, all right? It's a statement he's making. You know, and, and, and you look at it on the surface, there's nothing wrong with this statement even. It's acknowledging that Jesus is coming from God. That are better than all his other Pharisee friends. And you notice the questions he asks as you look through the passage. He's not trying to trap Jesus, unlike a lot of the other Pharisees. But I think, as Jesus often does, when he answers, he knows the question that's in the heart. And I think it's no different here. He addresses Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. 
And on the surface, nothing wrong. But you see, he still didn't quite understand who Jesus was. In this statement, he's placing himself and Jesus on the same level. Now think about this. Nicodemus was not just a Pharisee. He was a ruler amongst the Pharisees. He was actually, if you read in uh, um, uh, the, the John's Gospel, he was one of the Sanhedrin, the high council of the, um, 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 the Jews, the ones that ultimately condemned Jesus to death. So he was really up there. So, you know, in, in normal circumstances, for someone up there to say, you are my equal, wow, it's great. Except for the fact that Jesus had to point out to him, no, it's not the same. But the subtext which Jesus is answering is this. There is something wrong with our life here and now. There is a problem. That we have a problem. That Nicodemus had a problem. And all of us as human beings have this problem, which is why we need to be born again. We need a new life. That's the first point. As we go on, he continues. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Basically, you know, he's saying, wait a minute, Jesus, this does not compute. How can this possibly be so? Right? He's thinking, obviously, in natural terms. But more than that, he's saying, how can my life be made new? And Jesus says, you know, because he asks, how can I possibly do it? Jesus says to him, you can't. <laughs> if you want a new life, you need to be born of the water and the Spirit. Now, many uh, different commentators I, I read through, and as I was preparing for this sermon, they sometimes talk about water and the Spirit being, you know, water baptism and the cleansing. But uh, I like D.A. Carson's uh, conclusion, and a few other commentators point to the fact that Jesus was talking to a teacher of the people of God. So he knew uh, the Word of God backwards and forwards. Now, the scribes were uh, lawyers. They understood the letter of the law. Pharisees knew how to apply the law to life. And so he would have known his Old Testament. And D.A. Carson points to the fact that he's making an allusion to the Old Testament, specifically to Ezekiel chapter 36. You know, Ezekiel was prophesying to the people of God who were in exile, those who had, you know, um, been under the covenant but had failed to keep the covenant. And as a result, found themselves exiled from Jerusalem and from Israel. And this was the promise that God gave through Ezekiel to his people. He said this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So in other words, you know, he was saying this water and the spirit is what God wants to do in each and every one of us. Remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh to create in us a new life. 
to help us to become new creations in that sense. Then we get to verse 7. I told you in American sports, they like to do 316. In Ireland, there was a sports fan who was very famous. He used to put up a sign, John 3.7. <laughs> What's John 3.7? Not so well known. But John 3.7 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, <clears throat> you must be born again. Now in the English, we often translate it as born again. But in some of the older translations, it actually says, you must be born from above. Because that Greek word, anothen, also can mean from above. You know, you stop and you think about it. What Nicodemus was asking is, how can I possibly be born again? I.e., what can I do to be born again? Impossible. Well, think, all of us, I know, at some point in our lives, we were all babies, right? You were born into this earth, and that's why you celebrate your birthdays. What did you do to be born? I ask you that question in the first place, naturally. Nothing, right? It's our parents who did something, <laughs> but not us. We contribute nothing to our birth. And in that sense, it's the same with new birth. We contribute nothing to our new birth. Right? Oh, you all may quote back to me this scripture. God helps those who help themselves. Right? Acts chapter 29 verse 5. Some of you look blankly at me and say, oh, really? Yeah, that verse is there. No, there's no Acts 29. Acts ends at chapter 28. This is not from the Bible. This is Benjamin Franklin. The Bible teaches us that God helps those who cannot help themselves. That we are incapable of doing it ourselves. He continues in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right? We can't control the wind, can we? Last few days, big winds that came along with all the rains. And, you know, as long as the, rain's not, uh, the wind's not blowing in a certain direction, I like to keep the window open because it's nice and cool. Don't even need to turn on the aircon. But, you know, we can't control the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. We can hear its sound, is what... Uh, uh, Jesus is saying, some of you have been following in the news or you've heard about something that took place in uh, Kentucky, Wilmore, Kentucky, in a small town where uh, Asbury University is located. Some of you look at me as if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Let me tell you, on the 8th of February, because this is a Christian university, they have weekly chapel services. And that particular morning, after chapel was concluded, the benediction was given, it was dismissed, about a dozen students decided they're going to stay behind and pray. And within 15 minutes, that entire chapel was filled again. People started coming back in. And they started praying and praising God and worshipping God. 8th of February. Do you know when that prayer meeting ended? On the 23rd of February. It went on 24-7 for 16 days. And finally, you know, the administration had to put an end to it because not only were people coming from the university, there were people coming from all over, not just the US, but around the world. You know, they'd have to gather outside the chapel building just to try and uh, uh, come into the Lord's presence and experience what is essentially, I believe, a revival taking place. 
And in many ways, you know, I've been reading reports about it, and it's not just reported by uh, religious uh, uh, news sources. Washington Post, New York Times, all have stories about this. Go read it for yourself. They've interviewed people who've been there and have seen what have happened. I have people I know who've gone and have given reports about, you know, coming into, they could sense tangibly the presence of God. And it's a, a very, it, it's unusual because it's leaderless. No one led this. You know, people just sing and they sing spontaneously. I, I've been seeing some social media reports and people criticizing how terrible the worship is. Who cares? You know, the quality wasn't there. The heart of worship is so evident. But this is an example of the wind blowing where he will. The Holy Spirit at work and moving. And you know, some of the uh, reports, people are saying, we believe that this is something God's going to spread around the globe. Just as he has in previous revivals around the world. You know, and I'm saying, yes, Lord, more, Lord. Here, Lord. But God will do what he will do because he's sovereign. It's his Holy Spirit. And that's his solution to our problem. But let's carry on because Nicodemus asked this third question. And he asked this question, how can these things be? How can it be? Jesus turns and he looks at him and he says, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I could paraphrase what Jesus was saying to him, calling him teacher of Israel, be saying to someone akin in our day and age, You, reverend, bishop, professor, doctor, Nicodemus, how can you not understand? You've studied God's word. You know this is how God works. May I suggest to you the problem he had was it didn't fit his paradigm. Now we know right at the start of the passage, this story tells us that Nicodemus came by night. Some interpreters say, oh, he came by night because he was shy. He didn't want people to see him speaking to Jesus. Where in the Gospels have the Pharisees ever been embarrassed of speaking to Jesus? I believe that he came in the night because it's putting forward this uh, idea, uh, the contrast between darkness and light. What do I mean? You see, later on in the passage, verses 19-20, which we didn't read, follow on from John chapter 3, it says this, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. At the start of John's gospel, uh, John in his prologue to the gospel says, the true light which gives light to everyone has come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You say to me, hey, pastor, this is a Pharisee, okay? He practiced the law, and he was, you know, as far as the law is concerned, fulfilled all righteousness, just like Paul talks about himself, Saul, you know, when he was a Pharisee before he became the apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Remember a few weeks back, I was preaching from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we are familiar with this passage. It says, therefore, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never denied that Pharisees were righteous as far as the law was concerned. They were scrupulous in doing what they could to meet the letter of the law. But the subject of the Sermon on the Mount told us that it's not just meeting the letter of the law that's important. If you want to keep the law, you have to keep the whole law, which means the spirit of the law also must be kept. And that, we know, is where the problem lies. See, Nicodemus was highly capable. You don't rise to the top of the Pharisees if you're not someone of high esteem, someone who is considered of you know, noble character in that sense. Very righteous, humanly speaking. He did all the right things. But that's why I believe he found it difficult to hear what Jesus was saying. It's threatening to hear that all my efforts fall short. That everything I do is not enough. That I need to be born again. That I need a new life. We're in the season of Lent. And Lent is a time where we do self-examination. But it's also a time in which you know, we are encouraged to practice certain disciplines. Not only to give ourselves in prayer, but to find opportunities to fast. And nowadays, you know, our fasting goes beyond just uh, uh, skipping a meal or two. You know, I know nowadays intermittent fasting is so popular. <laughs> intermittent fasting, that's not the same thing. All right? But the idea is that you would give something up so that you have time, effort and energy to do something uh, to put ourselves in the, the, the things of God. That you know, when we, we, we give up a meal or we give up eating and fasting uh, from, from eating, we are saying as Jesus did, right? That man shall not live by bread alone, but by upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So if you're skipping a meal, don't just carry on and then do your work through that meal. <laughs> spend time opening the word of God. Spend time praying. It, the idea is saying that, Lord, my life consists in more than just my appetites. In more than just these physical things that I want to put my life in your hands. And then, by the way, you know, if you do give up your meal, what do you do with the money which you normally spend in meal? You know, give it to those who are in need. Or for some of us, you know, we need to fast from social media because social media sucks up all our time. We got so much time on social media, we got no time to have uh, uh, social time with people who are here in flesh and blood. <laughs> all these things are good and well and necessary. Now, I'm not saying you know don't do these things, but I I want to point out to you. If that's what you think makes you righteous before God, we're no different from Nicodemus. You see, the purpose of Lent is not so that we can find ourselves more disciplined. The purpose of Lent is so that we can come to the end of ourselves. That we come to the point where we realize it's not about me, that I fail time and time again yesterday at uh, uh, um, the Saturday service, there was some banter going on uh, between the hosts who shall remain unnamed. Those who were there know who they were. <laughs> and they admitted, you know, 
lasted all of two days trying to give up something. <laughs> and it didn't quite make it. And that's what happens, isn't it? When I was in seminary, I was uh, introduced to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous by a friend who actually came to Christ through AA. Very good friend who I still am in touch with because he was part of a small group that I had. Uh, and he's now a, a clergyman, Anglican clergyman in the U.S., and we keep in touch every month, you know, the wonders of Zoom, <laughs> we manage to uh, connect. But he introduced me to the 12 steps, and the 12 steps are very interesting. Because these first three steps actually uh, were inspired by an Anglican clergyman named Sam Shoemaker. He was the rector of Calvary Church in New York City, which incidentally my friend, another friend, uh, Jacob Smith, is now the rector of that same church. But they were the ones in which uh, Bill Wilson, who, who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, had gone to and been part of a group. And, you know, these steps are actually very gospel-laden, uh, uh, full of the gospel. Uh, but because they try and bring it, you know, to other people, they try and uh, dumb down the religious aspect of it. But you, at the first three steps, you cannot avoid uh, the, the, the core of it. And it starts like this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. It's first this acknowledgement. And secondly, it says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, that we needed something outside ourselves to save us. We can't do it in and of our own strength. But thirdly, and this is the critical step, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care, and in the original, I think, Shoemaker, to the care and direction of God as we understood Him. And Sam Shoemaker said that as we understood Him because, you know, it doesn't matter how strong your faith is, whatever your conception of it is, doesn't really matter if it's perfect or not. Are you willing to turn yourself over to Him? Are you willing to surrender to Him? Now, in uh, AA, they have something called the Big Book. It's not very big, but that's what it's called. And in the Big Book, chapter 5 is an important chapter because it's entitled, How It Works. And it explains how these steps work in the lives of alcoholics. And, you know, there are thousands and, and uh, thousands upon thousands of alcoholics who have practiced these steps and they found deliverance from alcohol. But may I suggest to you, we are not just struggling because we're addicted to alcohol or other substances, all of us are addicted in some way, shape, or form. And if in nothing else, we are addicted to sin. But look at what the big book says and points out the problem that we have. The first requirement, it says in the book, is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collusion with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. You know, and then he goes on and he points out, this is what we do. We struggle and we strive and we try and organize things the way we want. And guess what? 
Does it happen that way? What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He tries harder. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or the flip side is sometimes you can be demanding. The other side is, oh, I'll be more gracious so that hopefully my graciousness towards you makes you change your ideas or mine and you will still conform to what I want in the end. Right? But as the case may be, still the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, okay, I've got some problem at fault here. He is sure that other people are more to blame. And as a result, he becomes angry, indignant, and self-pitying. So what's the problem? Where does this come from? I skip on down later on in the passage. It's selfishness. Self-centeredness, we think, is the root of our troubles. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. Either we kill this selfishness, or the selfishness will kill us. This is the nature of addiction. That you try and control things that are ultimately uncontrollable. Right? Those of us who are parents know this very well. <laughs> you can place all kinds of strict rules and all kinds of uh, uh, things around your children. You can never make them. You can make them behave the way you would like them to behave, but you can never make them think the way you would like them to think. Or believe as you would like them to believe. And this is true not just of our children, it's true of everyone. <laughs> And the irony is this, you see. When in an alcoholic, when they find they can't control anything, the only thing they seem to be able to control is the choice to self-medicate. And so they turn to substances to medicate themselves, to deal with the unhappiness that they feel deep inside. And you know, this is true of almost all of us. I know it's certainly true of me. No, I'm not an alcoholic in the traditional sense, all right, but I am addicted to finding ways to make myself feel better about myself. Some people use substances. Other may, others may find pleasure or leisure in their hobbies or going shopping or throwing themselves into work or throwing themselves into exercise. You know, not all these things are bad things by any means. But when we try to exert control by looking to all these things to find our happiness, to find our fulfillment, it becomes very, very difficult. Our unbelief makes it difficult for us to believe. So now let's get back to the passage. And I promised you I wanted to look at this passage and find out in its context what it actually means for us. You know that John uh, chapter 3 verse 16 is sandwiched between two uh, verses. Just before, you know, Jesus points to the story in the Old Testament of how uh, um, Moses had to lift up a bronze serpent, a snake in the wilderness so that when everyone who looked at it was healed, 
He says, in the same way the Son of Man will be lifted up, i.e. talking about his crucifixion, that Jesus will be raised high. But then, in the uh, verse after John 16, John 3, 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It speaks about his incarnation, the fact that Jesus came to earth and he walked amongst us. That we, we see that this Jesus who ultimately came to die for us shows us who God is. That God opens his arms to us. He justifies the ungodly. He is willing to be with us. Where is this verse taken out of context? And it's very subtle, mind you. It hinges on how we understand this word, so. God so loved the world. Let me show you two examples. And I'm not by any means uh, uh, putting down these translators, but there are two different modern translations of this verse, which give us an illustration of how we can sometimes take it in two different ways. In the message, it reads like this. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. In other words, so means the extent or the amount that God loved the world so much. And it's subtle. When we think in these terms, now it's not wrong, but oftentimes our hearing, because of our selfish hearts, we hear this as being focused upon us. Oh, he loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die for me. And so it's about me and, and, and myself again. That's the focus. The New Living Translation translates it this way. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son. And it's because this word so should be translated in this manner. God so loved the world. This is how He loved the world. He sent His Son, Jesus Do you see that subtle distinction? One, the focus is on me, whom God loves, which he does. I'm not saying he doesn't love us. But the other emphasis tells us that it is because of his great love that he sent his son. And you know, he didn't love the world in as, uh, the world as it is. Right? John wrote an epistle. He wrote three epistles. Towards the end of your New Testament, you find those epistles. And in one of those epistles, he says to Christians, friendship with the world, love of the world, is enmity with God. That the world is not worthy of love. Really, it isn't. Because it's filled with people like you and me filled with people whose hearts are turned away from God. I shared this yesterday with them, and I'll share it with you. I, I, I'm a bit hesitant because this is recorded, and some people may take offense, especially. <laughs> you know there's a song uh, that we love to sing, What a Beautiful Name. And uh, I remember when I first sung it here in Good Shepherd, I was really troubled by the second verse. Why? Because the second verse reads uh, like this. You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. With the implication that God loves me so much, that the world revolves around... I know the writers of the song had no intention of saying that. That's not what they are trying to 
put forward. But unfortunately, when we sing it in this way, it's very easy to take our focus off God and onto ourselves. So we attempted to rewrite it and we wrote it. And if you recognize, we often sing it with this verse, although some worship leaders forget and they go back to the original. To reconcile us to the Father, so Jesus, you for us came down. You see, the point is this. It wasn't our worth that brought Jesus down. Rather, his coming down brought us our worth. We are worthy and we are worthwhile because Jesus came for us. Because God justifies the ungodly. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> this was more relevant maybe for yesterday's service because the younger people know this. You know, this pop song is quite popular right now, Antihero. And she has a chorus which goes, Hi, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. And that's what the gospel tells us. My professor Paul Zal used to say, the golden thread that runs through all our problems is me. Stop and you think about it. What is the one common denominator in all your problems? All the problems that you face? What's the one constant? I am the constant. And so often it comes back to that. That's why ultimately it's not something that we can make happen to ourselves. We can't be born again in our own effort or strength. We must be born again. You know, Christianity is not about living by self-propulsion. Christianity is not about good people becoming better. Christianity is about dead people who are brought back to life. And it's only something that God himself can do. What we do is we make that decision to turn our wills over to him, to surrender. Which is why I love this uh, collect uh, from Ash Wednesday, because it captures the idea that's so important for us. You know, why is it we can, uh, in the season of Lent, Going through this intense navel-gazing, I know it sounds terrible, but <laughs> examining our hearts, examining our motives, examining our lives, examining everything we do, that's the idea of what Lent is supposed to be. The only reason we can do that, the only reason we can come week after week after week and do the general confession, admit you know, that I, I've done the things I ought not to have done, those things which I ought to have done, I haven't done in thought, in word, and deed. The only reason we can do that is because, you see this next to last line, that he is the God of all mercy. The almighty and everlasting God who hates nothing that he has made. That he is more willing to forgive so often than we are to repent. It's on that basis that we can be honest with ourselves and honest with God, most of all. That we can come to Him and we can surrender ourselves fully to Him and put our trust in Him. And that's what it means to believe, that all who believe in Him, it's not just mental assent. The two uh, uh, other passages we read were about Abraham. 
Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, his belief was not just the fact that, oh yeah, I believe you exist, God. His belief was that he heard God and he obeyed. He went. When God told him to go, even though he didn't know where he was supposed to go to, he just went. He surrendered himself. He gave himself fully to the Lord. Let us bow our heads, a word of prayer. Let us reflect upon his word and what it means for us. Let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Where have we, in our projects of self-propulsion, landed up? What are the things we have turned to that rather than help, they have hurt us and we find ourselves bound by them. The Bible tells us, Whom the Son of God sets free, it shall be free indeed. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you know us well. You love us with an everlasting love. Not because we are lovely in and of ourselves, but because of your great love. You sent your Son, Jesus, so that him who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we offer ourselves to you, asking you now, Lord, to build within each and every one of us, to do with us as you will. Relieve us of this bondage to self that all of us struggle with in one way, shape, or form, so that we may better fulfill your will, better do thy will, Take away the difficulties that we face, that the victory we have over them may be a testimony to those around us of your help, of your power, of your love, and the way to eternal life. We ask, Lord, that you help us to do your will. May your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.